you know, we'll see. Uh, maybe we have to keep the the new heavens and the new earth, you know, in abeyance until fall or something like that. But anyway. Um. So I think we're just, I, I never wish this, my computer camera or uh, clocks, if Siri says it's 1030, must be 1030, right? Yeah. Right, let, let, it, let us pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant the man such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, here we are, threatening to do seven and eight today. Um, now, the thing I want to, we just have to remember, because I, I want to reemphasize, you know, first of all, you have to kind of be patient with your journeys through Revelation, um, because there's a lot of mysterious stuff. But at the core, it's not that mysterious, honestly. It's seeing um, pretty understandable earthly events, only seeing them from the vantage point of the throne of heaven and what they look like from that standpoint. But, uh, and, and today's chapters are, you know, a pretty good case in point that um, like chapter seven, you know, you got uh, 144,000, which has led to all kinds of strange speculation, you know, uh, of, you know, like, is there just 144,000 saved? And then he had this multitude with palm branches. But neither of these images are really very difficult to understand when we just take the Bible at face value and look at what they're saying. Um, so the first thing, what do we, um, what have I proposed that Revelation is talking about? Okay, and, and to judgments, uh, I've proposed that Revelation is talking primarily, although, although perhaps not exclusively, about, um, and when I say not exclusively, all prophecy in the Bible has, ha, tends to have multiple horizons to it. Even in the Old Testament, for example, we're used to um, hearing the virgin will conceive and bear a son, you'll call his name Emmanuel, as being a prophecy of the incarnation, which it clearly is. However, Isaiah makes no sense unless there is some child born in his lifetime that fulfills that prophecy also. Read it, Isaiah 7. Don't, 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 I'm not preaching heresy here. It just is that way. So these multiple levels of... of so the idea that, that these... And because... And one of the reasons it works is that the themes of Scripture tend to repeat themselves, and, and we tend to have cycles. So the judgment at the end of the Old Testament looks a lot like the judgment right at the end of, of the Gospels on Jerusalem. And, it's gonna, and, it, and if we're taking it, you know, honestly, it's going to look a little bit like what it's going to look like at the end of time, that is. He's, he's coming again in glory to judge, and we're told that those who believe in him will be saved, and there'll be a judgment. And that's what this is talking about at Jerusalem. And so it's not really complex, though the symbolism is exotic in sometimes. But as we've discovered, even the exotic nature of that isn't so exotic when we understand it in its own biblical terms and unpack it that way. Well, Jerusalem is symbolic for Israel. It, it's the idea of, of I mean, it's, it's just a very basic New Testament narrative that the Son of God came to his people uh, as the, as to, to call them to repent and believe as the fulfillment of God's covenant. And 
for the most part, the leadership of Israel did not. And the consequence was judgment. This is, I mean, Jesus told parables that make this clear, you know, that the parable of the landowner who, who let out his vineyard to, to, to tenant farmers. And he sent some servants to get his share of the crops and they beat him and sent him away. And finally, the landowner says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And the, the conclusion of that parable is, what will the vineyard owner do? He will take the vineyard away from those lessees and give it to others. No, no, they said. But so it's not. It, so when we, if we understand that revelation is is in the in the in the first instance dealing with the judgment that comes because God's um, old covenant people have rejected Him, and then dealing with salvation of of that remnant which put their faith in Him and were saved. There's nothing particularly ex exotic in the Bible. It's only weird because um, it's God's own people who are unfaithful. And, 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 and so the real narrative shift of revelation that makes it a little bit difficult to get your arms around sometimes is because the judgment is portrayed in terms of judgment on the unbelieving nations, but it's, it's God's own covenant people who have become that by disbelief. We're going to have in the gospel this Sunday, it's right of John 2, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, why? Because they believe not in me. So Jerusalem, the leadership, was guilty because they did not believe in him. So this isn't, again, it's not... It's pretty straightforward in the scriptures. When you get it into a committee of discussion, we can make it complex. Um, so, any, any questions about that? So, so this is so. Now we're dealing with what we've had so far is um, the revelation of Jesus in chapter one, letters to the churches, the, the ascent into heaven. We're seeing the heavenly worship now, which is the worship of the church fulfilling the old covenant worship before the throne of God. And then we have the beginning of the unfolding of judgments, the seals taken off the scroll by Jesus who's worthy to, uh, to, to, he's the heir, and so he's worthy to judge. So <clears throat> the judgments are starting to unfold, and um, before they happen in chapter 7, let's just jump in and start reading and talking about it. Um, chapter 7 verse after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth what's interesting the four corners of the earth you know we could say well he must not know they thought it was flat or something you know but it really is um, there's a larger framework to this but it's portraying the earth here or the land as an altar. And there's actually a pretty significant interpretation of Genesis that sees the whole creation as God making a cosmic sanctuary. So at the four corners, you're thinking, you're, we're trying to think the whole earth. If you think the land and the land epitomized by the temple, because to really understand what's being said here, we have to understand that earth and trees and ocean are really symbolic words for the creation, but that creation is epitomized by the temple and the, and the God's old covenant people that, that, that were his creation, his special creation. And then they're now, because of unbelief, they're being decreated. Much like uh, the first creation, God made people and it was all beautiful, and then there was sin, and then there was a regression into the world covered in water. 
the, the reversal of the creative process. <clears throat> so the four angels save the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of, of the earth. That the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. It's interesting, the tree in, 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 image in um, the scriptures, people in, in psalm language and in, in prophetic language are often referred to as trees, such as are planted in the house of our God shall flourish, the Alec palm tree. So the idea that, of a tree is a symbol of this is life that God has planted and 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 so that's that's where that image can kind of play out um yes so the the, the holding back the winds are somehow symbolically the 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 judgment that's coming remembering in hebrew that the words for wind breath and spirit as to some degree they are in Greek, are the same word. So the, the, the judgments of God are coming, but, um, but, they, but they're restrained until something happens. So let's read on. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of living God. What rises in the east? The sun. There's a passage in Malachi, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So it could be an image of Christ or an image of just an angel arising. Um, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, what is this all about? And don't think for deep mystical understanding because it's just a very basic point. Judgment's coming. What's got to happen first? Huh? Well, but this before tribulation. This is, I mean, the, 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 but what 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 is he doing when he's sealing these people? Protecting them, saving them from what? From judgment. If there's any more simple description of what the New Testament talks about in Christ. I don't know it. Jesus comes to save, if through faith in Jesus, we're saved from the judgment that is to come. It's language throughout the New Testament. So this is just the, the, the version of that. Judgment's coming, and, and man, don't do that until I, I seal or set apart my people who are not going to be judged. Now, can we see any refer reference to this, say, in Egypt, Passover. Passover, before the angel of death came through, we marked the doorposts, okay? Um, so the, um, this ceiling, let's, let's go, let's just do the, um, I heard the number of those who were, well, let's do the ceiling, then the number. Um, I, I sent out verses with the ceiling. Um, Ephesians uh, 1.13 talks about um, after you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is likely a reference to the ancient practice of baptism where after water, one was anointed with oil by the bishop, the seal of the spirit. You were, you were, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Same word as the seal here. Um, we also see this in the Old Testament with reference to the high priest who, who um, wore something on his forehead. In Deuteronomy 6, the law was on the forehead, which is interesting because here the spirit, see with the spirit, which is fulfilling the law. Um, and actually, there's a really interesting verse in Ezekiel 9. It was on the on the verses I sent out, um, or Ezekiel nine. So um, uh, 
No, it's, I'm pretty, pretty sure it's pretty not fact chapter nine. Um, if it's not, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to search for it. <laughs> um, okay, so here's what here's what he says. Um, In verse 6, I mean, this, this is prophetic language from Ezekiel. Utterly slay old and young, men, maidens, and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And the ceiling was um, verse, yeah, verse 4, 9, 4. That's what you meant. You meant chapter 4. You meant verse 4, yeah. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city and through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are in it. What's interesting of this mark is actually the Hebrew tav, which looks like a T. So it suggests that way before there was any idea of a cross, the mark here was that, that you put a tav on them and it's, it's a seal with a cross, but th now this the setting here is this is when the the old the the Solomon's temple is being destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezekiel's having a vision of that, and before that happens, before God lets that happen, we we he's going to mark those who are his. So we have a direct parallel with Revelation there, indirectly because even Ezekiel, the judgment is coming on God's people who've been unfaithful. I, th I think Tov is good, Tov. But there's no, but there might be because because well the Mazar the Mazarites put the value vowels in, so you had to either know, yeah. So. Oh, I said for Tov and Tov, the Hebrew doesn't actually have vowels, and so historically, when you're reading Hebrew, you just had to know. And when they translated the Old Testament, these people called the Mazarites who put vowel points in so people would know how would the traditional interpretation were. So typically, so tov or tav would depend upon uh, a, a vowel point that somebody later on determines. So. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, so here he says, don't, this judgment's not going to come to pass um, until um, we, we seal the servants of God in their foreheads. So there's that. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes and the children of Israel were sealed. Now, he goes through a listing of all the tribes. There's a whole digressive study into why those 12 were listed and not others. We're not going to do that. So if you want to, you know, you can come, we can talk about some other time because it's just in the weeds beyond what I want to get. Clearly, however, the 144,000 um, of all the tribe of Israel, the 12th, it is, is about uh, a thousand, is about completeness. It means that the fullness of Israel is being saved. It doesn't mean 144 actual heads which is a, as, as populations have grown, becomes an increasingly minuscule number of people. Um, how do I know? Because that's all revelation is, is symbolic numbers and languages. And to, and to, and to, to all of a sudden think that this means literal number of people, like, like to say that, that the seven spirits of God means God has seven spirits and the Holy Spirit isn't unified. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, you, you've got, you've got, um, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, so 12,000 of each tribe. And then the fullness is all of them together, 104,000. So, so, so 12 also because it's 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 the number of the tribes. 
um, has has individually the completeness of Israel. So it's it's you know, that that's it clearly is meant to to mean that. Twelve by a thousand. So you have you, you have the fullness of Israel by a thousand being a you know a full I guess you know thousand being a complete number. I, would be uh would be the would be the idea there. Huh? Whole number. A whole number. But each tribe would be uh you know twelve you get a twelve thousand by twelve by a thousand, I guess. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways to play with it. So um but again my only point to everybody is we can we can and there's there's a lot of commentaries you have a lot of fun with it and it is fun if you like this stuff but the meaning is not hard to understand this means the fullness of israel because the fullness of israel will be saved this is god's chosen and they're going to be saved yes These, these 144,000 do. It's the, it's, it's, it's the remnant church, which isn't incidentally 144,000 yet. It's but symbolically the fullness of it. Yes, that's what that's what I mean. I, I was I want to quote you from Romans chapter eleven, verse um, twenty-five and twenty-six, which pertains to: For I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, quote, all Israel will be saved, which includes those who are his in the ethnic Israel plus the Gentiles, which is a good segue because is exactly what we're getting in Revelation chapter 7. We've got 144,000 tribes, and then he says um, after that, he says in verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our, our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the the argument here is that this is not a different image, but the same image looked at differently. That that and this is exactly what um, what the New Testament is telling us is that um, Israel, the fullness of Israel, now consists of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And so the the image of of this of the second. The multitude is an image of Pentecost. Cretes, Arabians, dwellers of Mesopotamia, we do hear them uh, speaking the wonderful works of God. Um, and if you, yes, Dad. I mean that the Gentiles will also have the seals on them? Well, this again is the seal of the spirit which is symbolized by the completion of the of the ancient baptismal rite of sealing all who came to christ with oil and forehead right that's right um it, so the, the the one aspect of this that um 
God in eternity sees the fullness of his people in, in, the, in the historical situation of the first century, it's a very embryonic people. There are Gentiles, there are Jews, there, but, but they're going to be, um, and it's interesting, um, in one of the letters too, it talked to, it written of the seven churches, remember it said, because you've kept my faith, I will save you from the hour of trial coming on. So, so the idea that Gentiles are going to be included in, in this um, salvation. And Ephesians, this, and this is um, the thing that uh, gives the, um, the biggest lie to the dispensationalist position is, is um, Ephesians 3, 1 through 6 where St. Paul says, um, how that by revelation God made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So God's people now consist of all who believe in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, there's one new people. There's not two separate people. And so the, the dispensationalist position, which wants to say that the church, which is sees as Gentiles taken away for God to deal with Israel, and, and, and supposedly what is the great tribulation, just doesn't match what the Bible itself says about the constituency of God's people, which is Jew and Gentile. The other thing about the palm branches is kind of significant is that this is an allusion uh, to the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which, which had the idea of God gathering all um, his people in. We have a Thanksgiving hymn that uh, uh, alludes to this, uh, gather all thy people in, free from sorrow, free from sin, and so the Tabernacles comes at the end of the year, uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, which is this tabernacle, is the end, the culminating thing. So the palm branches were an element of that. Um, and it, it relates in John's Gospel with Jesus, where on the chapter where it says, on the last great day of the feast, Jesus, whoever thirsts come to me for living water, was probably the Feast of Tabernacles. And which had a so had a, a, an association with the spirit. So anyway, that's with the palm branch. It's not Palm Sunday. It's it's the conclusion of of salvation. So then then um, after we after he seals all the people who are his. Um, he saw a multitude standing, crying with a loud voice, verse 10, saying, salvation belongs to our God and sits on the throne to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. St. Paul has a cryptic line um, in one of the epistles, just, just dawning on me, where he talks about angels, the, the angelic hosts being witnesses to God's love revealed to people, revealed in. So when they see the judgment and see the love of God set forth, in saving people this way, their worship is in, in that, um, uh, because to some degree, the angels are witnessing what God is doing in Christ and also in giving glory to God for it, for the love shown in, in this action of salvation. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? The white robes throughout are the 
the righteousness we receive from Christ and in which we grow into. Later on, uh, we'll see in, in a later chapter where they're wearing fine linen, bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the good works bear witness to the presence of God, and, and that's um, the white robes. Where'd they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, <laughs> it's like, I, 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 I'm just kind of passing through. I, I was told to come up here, seeing some things. Uh, maybe you could tell me. Um, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now here's the, um, perhaps not the, but certainly a um, verse that is um, often debated. But I would just, without getting too deep in the weeds on it, I turn to Matthew 24, 21, believe I sent you that verse where it says, um, in Matthew 24, we looked at this last week. This is the Olivet Discourse. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and says all of these things are gonna happen before the temple is destroyed. In verse 24, 21, he says, um, For there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. But then notice what he says, he goes on to say, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there do not believe it, for they'll arise and, and um, you know, and therefore, if he says this in the desert, don't go there. But he's talking to them as though they're going to see this. He's not saying 2,000 years later. And um, it, it, it's summarized. Um, In verse 34 of Matthew 24, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And what we must understand, and this is what invests Revelation with its cosmic significance, it's not just a run-of-the-mill judgment on some disobedient people, it's the end of the old covenant age and the beginning of the new covenant and the beginning of the last days and um and it it it, it, it is it is marked by a cosmic shift in the way god deals with human beings from his localized presence in israel in the temple as the focus of his creative redemptive activity in the world that is being done away. The old creation is being judged. And he's making all things new. And now God's going to interact with, his, with the world through his church in its worship, which you already have visited in Revelation 4 and 5, and of which our Eucharistic liturgy is most... We always are in that space as prayers, seated in the heavenly places, I think the Eucharist symbolically puts us in touch with that means the, the most in a most clear way. So it's the great tribulation because it's the turmoil of overthrowing Satan, sin, death. The evil one thrown out, he can't accuse anymore. God establishing Christ as Lord of all creation. And to get from the begin from before to after, it is the great tribulation. It will never be again because Jesus now is Lord. There will certainly be a subduing of more enemies and, you know, people will be held accountable, they'll come again to judge, but it won't be the great tribulation because this is the cosmic shift that happened in the first century.
And because they were faithful, the, therefore they are before him, the, the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, will tabernacle with them. That's the whole idea. He dwells with us. We dwell in him. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst, nor shall the sun strike them, nor any heat. Uh, look at Isaiah 51, 11 for that, some of that. Um, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, again, this is the, the, the horizons of prophecy. So it is obviously referring on one level to the faithful first century Christians who remain committed to Jesus and following him to death in the midst of all that. But obviously that promise applies to believers of every age who endure faithfully through whatever tribulation we face that the promise that God's going to do the same thing to us applies. It doesn't mean like, oh, nobody gets to live with God unless you got into this thing. But it's, it's, it's so it, it's a theme that prevails throughout the church. But, but we're promised, if we follow their examples of faithfulness to our ones, that's right. Living fountains of waters. A lot of this here, there's a whole study of Revelation, actually, that, that ties into the feasts of Israel, too. But that living fountains of water does have reverence to, to the Feast of Tabernacles in John's Gospel, where Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast and said, if anyone thirsts, come to me and I will give them living fountains of waters. So that's, that's the idea. Um, That's a transfiguration, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So chapter 7, then, is just an image of salvation. Judgment's coming, and before judgment comes, God seals his elect because they're saved from judgment. That's the essential definition of being a Christian. We are saved, we, are, we belong to Christ, have been marked by the Holy Spirit, and we're saved from the coming judgment. We have eternal life. That's the, that's the basic definition of, of being a Christian. It doesn't mean it'll always make you happy. It doesn't mean, but it means that, that we have a life that, that can't be taken away. And as Jesus said, he, um, um, whoever believes in me does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So these, these themes are right out of, are connected to John's gospel. Well, but I think, I think that's symbolic of the sacramental act. Throughout Revelation, we see a, a close connection between, you know, heavenly reality and earthly action. To the angels of the seven churches, right, and it most likely has to do with maybe the Episcopal leader, maybe the angel, but anyway, so the idea is that what's being done on earth is as it is being done in heaven. Well, you still, you still have to receive the promise. But 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 it but it doesn't mean that something real isn't isn't communicated in the act. Well, yeah, but you also want to make sure you have that first part. This this is this is part of the this is part of the um, of the um, tension sometimes between sort of evangelicalism and sacramental approach is 
is there, there's a, an emphasis on the idea of my, my personal response to faith, which the church has always understood to be absolutely essential. But that personal response of faith is the reception of the gifts communicated in baptism. And for me, I like the fact that on one day in time that, that actually has a calendar day to it, January 3rd, 1961, I was baptized. And there's a time when I, and so God pledged something to me. And what God pledges, he doesn't take back. And I want to receive it by faith, but I don't want the gift of it to all be whether I feel it or not. And when I come to the altar, I like that here it is in this, my body. It's not, I, I like the mystical also. I like to walk and have the experiences, but I hang my hat on here he's, here he is, because <laughs> he said he'd be here. Clearly, from the letters to the churches we've already covered, there's nothing in Revelation that says that just because you went through the sacrament of baptism and or confirmation, you're guaranteed to be saved. You have to live out your vocation. There's also, though, nothing that says that because you believe you shouldn't receive the signs of those things, which which sometimes is dealt with cavalierly in, in non-sacramental culture. Okay. Let's go to chapter eight. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Yeah. Um, now, the one thing we have to understand is that, as we talked about last time, that when you um, have a seal, a, a scroll with seven seals, um, you can't, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you can't open it until the seventh seal is opened. So the first six seals were preludes to the unfolding of judgment. But, but yeah. listen, are you the elect? I can't, I always see a first name. <laughs> um, so, so now this is, the, the scroll is opened and now the um, the judgments are are, are are being fully enacted. So that's the point. Now, the silence probably has to do with the incense that's coming up because the liturgy of incense in the temple, at least one author suggested, take, took about a half an hour. And let's just read on. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels. We had seven angels earlier. What were they? The churches, the angels of the churches who are standing before God. And, and they're given trumpets now. And um, trumpets herald, they, they, they announce things, especially the judgment of God. We get that in New Testament, like for example, our funeral epistle, um, for the trumpet will sound, and this is again the shofar, it's not the Maynard, Fer not the Maynard Ferguson trumpet. It's the, um, so um, they're given seven trumpets. Then I saw, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So the seven angels who are the angels of the churches, these are the prayers of the saints being offered. This just reflects the fact that our prayers are, are uh, 
brought before the throne of God. And the incense, um, there's a lot of images we could get there that, that makes them acceptable. It's like, hmm, prayers. Okay, let's, let's add a little. <laughs> well, let's, let's make them smell better to God. <laughs> but it means that, 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 that they, they, they ascend. Now, now and, and the whole idea of incense, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, prayers that's, let my prayer be set forth on the side as the incense. Um, Ezekiel chapter 20, 28 and 40, Ephesians 5, 2 talks about uh, make an offering to God as a sweet smelling aroma is the incense. And, and he makes the point that when we do good works and, 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 and are faithful, that is a sacrifice that smells good to God. <clears throat> So, whatever you ask the Father in my name, Jesus said, this is the prayer promise, here they are. Our prayers are offered right before the throne, and God uh, uh, makes them acceptable, and they're offered. And that's what the time that it seems like, they're given trumpets, don't blow them yet, Let's take our time. We'll make the offering of prayers and incense, and the prayers finally acceptable. They're offered. And then um, the angel took the censer, filled fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, that comes right from the what you call the theophany on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when God descended on the mountain. But the image of throwing it down means that the prayers that have ascended, God has heard, and now he's going to bring them to pass. And if you, um, this makes a lot of sense out of the language of the Psalms when you think about it, because in the Psalms they're always saying, God, vindicate me, defend me, help me, judge those who oppose me. And, um, this suggests that God will do that. Our role is to be faithful and innocent and to make our prayers. That's how we rule, not to repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with good, because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Because God, only the one who has the scroll in his right hand is, has, has the righteousness to judge rightly. And that's why we're to forgive, not because people are getting away with it, but because God will sort it out. And we want him to sort it out. And when he does, we will go, oh, gosh, I'm glad I let you do that. And if you ever had that experience in your own life and the unfolding of history, if you thought about taking something in your own hand and you didn't and, and you gave it some time and you saw kind of what happened, you go, oh, yeah, I'm glad I left that to God. Because when we take it in our hands, all of a sudden we also subtly move away from this elect group into now we have sin that we have to be dealt with. And that's the whole point of innocence. It's not, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's staying innocent before God. So they're thrown down and prayers are answered. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded. Now, we want to see that this is a slowly unfolding judgment. We have seven seals, and we think they're open to seven seals. It's all done. Oh, then there's seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets all done. Oh, then there's seven bowls. So, um, but we'll notice it's a gradually increasing judgment that, um, that um, the, the seals just are beginning the prelude. The trumpets have some consequence, but it's it's a significant portion less than the whole. And finally, when when the when the bowl judgments come, it's the completed judgment. So it's it's gradually increasing. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. 
and a third of the trees were burned up and the green grass was burned up. We will also notice in this progression here, um, similarity is not one-to-one -one correspondences with the plagues on Egypt, um, but, but they are um, the ways God slowly unfolds judgments ostensibly to give people time to realize and repent. And the creation imagery again, trees, green grass, has to do with Jerusalem and temple in Israel as symbolic of God's creation that is now being decreated. A third significant portion, not the majority. That's what that means. Not one out of every three trees and one out of every three blades of grass. It's symbolic language. And the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and the third of the sea became blood. That does hearken to the Nile turning into blood in, in, in Exodus. The, the interesting cross-reference to this is um, the mountain, which seems clearly to be Jerusalem. Jesus had a, a there's a line in the Gospels where Jesus says, um, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will obey you. So, the, 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 the sense here would be the adversary, those who are opposing those who believe in Jesus, as they continue in their faith, God will overthrow the adversary, even if it is old, all of old, old, old covenant Jerusalem. And the third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10. And we just have to understand this is symbolic language. It's, it's, it's describing things. Again, it doesn't mean that then or at any particular point in time, if this were even a description of future judgment, that literally one out of every three ships measured out and done that. It's a symbolic of a beginning of a judgment, which has a significant impact, but not yet the majority. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Um, there's an allusion here to, um, you know, a falling star. What, what would that perhaps um, have some reference point to? Fall, fall of the evil one. We'll see it. We'll see it later on in Revelation 12. Also in Isaiah 14, there's this uh, passage about uh, that he means to refer to the king of Babylon. But he says, he says, um, well, let me just turn to it and read it for you. It's an important passage to know about, uh, Isaiah 14. Um, um, Looking for the verse I want. Oh, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cast down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Yet you should be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. 
So this idea that that uh, the star falls um, symbolically in this judgment, the old covenant Jerusalem is overthrown, the wicked one is defeated, all these adversaries are being conquered in the judgment. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so the third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, one thing I would like you to, to look up and understand, that this language of sun, moon, and stars is used throughout the um, scriptures as... Um, and I gave you uh, a bunch of references in the email I sent out. Uh, Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, 24, 19 through 23. But it's always used these cosmic signs as sort of prophetic stage, stage props, indicating cosmic shifts and the downfall of regimes. The sun will be dark and the moon turned into blood does not mean prophetically that um, the moon is literally going to drip like blood. It means there's a cosmic shift happening, indicated by these prophetic stage props. There was indeed, yeah. So it doesn't mean that there won't be some actual stars in the planets, but... Um, But to say a third of the sun was struck and a third is just, it's symbolic. I'm just, I mean, so, you know, for, you know, for example, um, just to, just to read it so we're clear about this. Uh, and this, this is what, when Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse that we read that, and that the sun will be dark and the moon in, into blood, he, he, you know, and the son of man will come with clouds, that kind of stuff. That's hearkening to prophetic language. It's not saying I'm literally going to, although in the second coming, maybe we'll see him literally on a cloud, but it, it's, it's meant to associate what's happening with images that indicate what this, what this means. So for example, um, Verse 23 of chapter 24 of Isaiah, the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign. Just look up all those passages and kind of get, try to get your arms around that thing so that we have a symbolic portraying of judgment here, um, which, which would be um, probably if we just kind of netted it out what we've had with four trumpets, a third of the trees, there's going to be judgment on a significant number of, of old covenant people, but not the whole. Uh, the mountain throne, Jerusalem's overthrown. The star falls, the overthrow of the evil one. And now cosmic signs coming before the, the end of the old covenant. Yes. This is just using it symbolically because there's nothing in the Bible that talks about really reading the stars for, for that. That's more of a astrologer kind of thing, even though there's some ancient expertise in that. But God, the, the scriptures never indicate where to look for, look for signs, but where to listen to God's word and do what he says. And, and, and part, part of the... What, just a second, Ed. Um, what, one uh, thing is that, that part of the point here when he talks about the moon and the stars is, is that they are subject to God. And because part of the, the, the framework of um, astrology or star studies is the idea, okay, the stars are telling us something. And God's saying, no, I'm telling you something. And the stars, and they, the, they all will bow down to me. 
So that's why we always are told to, to, to listen to the word of God. That's why we shouldn't dabble in horoscopes. We shouldn't dabble in those things that try to fortune tell. Uh, because even if they determine something that might come to pass in some way, it'll be a half truth that will deceptively draw you into some place you don't want to be. Yeah, I want to get it. Yeah, what'd you, what, yeah question, Ed? Uh, no, Rhonda raised her hand. Who did? Oh, Rhonda. Okay, sorry, Rhonda. Yes. I I just thought it it seems to me like is it is it saying the Christians will have been swept away already and and they are avoiding the judgment. The people left will have a judgment. That implies some of them will actually be okay. If I mean if there's a judgment, that means that maybe some of them will be saved after after the Christians will be swept away. Well, again, not each and every Jewish person necessarily died. Josephus says a million people were killed in Jerusalem at the Roman invasion. My Hebrew professor said there weren't that many people living there at the time. So I, the numbers are a hard thing. But understand that it was a, a cataclysmic event, you know, on the dimension of the Holocaust. For, for the Jewish people at that time. And now I want to be clear, so the image of judgment here, because, because there's an image of, of judgment and salvation, and there's an actual reality. The actual on the ground reality of, of salvation in the first century was the Christian church in Jerusalem was warned to flee from Jerusalem. It fled. It left Jerusalem, it crossed over the Jordan River by tradition to a city called Pella, where, where, it, where, the, where it escaped. And then the Romans came and reduced Israel from north to south as it came down and, and completely destroyed the temple. That's the visible image of it. And um, it doesn't mean that anything like no one who didn't escape with the early church will ever get to heaven or get to the new creation. It is symbolically though, that the way to redemption is faith and God protects his people. And, you know, there may be, may, may have been some who, who, who being the destruction said, gosh, I was wrong. You know, Lord save me. <laughs> never, never a bad, you know, never, never. So I, we don't know how to play this out, but historically, the, the, the reality of the salvation of the early church was they actually escaped. So it's not just metaphorical salvation, but actually real salvation. Yeah. So let's close our, and, and uh, I can accomplish, yes, we did do seven and eight, if I cut more verses. Uh, uh, we could stay here for a couple more years. We've got to be do that. <clears throat> um, so um, the moon, the stars, the third of the day did not shine likewise the night. Again, all that third of is, again, a beginning judgment, significant, but not yet all. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, earth here could also be translated as land, the promised land. And one thing I want to um, highlight is that we'll, we'll get woe to those who dwell on the earth or the land. And I think in the framework of, of Revelation, we should understand that the essential locus of citizenship and identity is contrasted here that when we see the 24 elders and the multitude before the throne and when we see the 144,000 and the multitude of all nations that's us and they are we are before the throne of God and the lamb and therefore St. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven so we are not dwellers on the earth. So when they say, woe to those who dwell on the earth, the whole point of Christian identity is this is not really where we are. 
this is not really where we belong. And so salvation, we live in another place, even though we live here, even though we may die in some aspect of something, that's not where our life is. So woe to those whose life is entirely here because the judgment is coming. And when your life is entirely rooted here and what is here is gone, your life is gone. That's, that's kind of the, the, when it says woe to the heavens of the earth, that's what it means. I think that's the way we should understand it. Because we have been, as St. Paul, in that verse we've talked about, been raised up with Christ and made to sit in the heavenly places. So we are, we dwell in Christ in a dimension of reality. We have eternal life. And, and the reality of salvation is nothing, no temporal thing can take that from us because we've been sealed, we've been saved. So there's a way in which the great tribulation is the particular tribulation of that first century in its, in its concentration, but there's a way in which all of us participating, being faithful through what we participate in that and dwell now before the throne and before the Lamb. We come and we even now get to drink of the living water, get to be fed, get to be shepherded. Tears get to be comforted some now as we wait for that complete thing. So. All right, there we are. We'll pick up next week. Hope you all got the email. We have the reading list. I, I think we're tackling two chapters next time too. So let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Thanks for joining us online. We had Ed, for those who couldn't see, Ed, Elizabeth, Mimi, Nancy, Rhonda, and Ruth. Now that we're over, can I, can I ask you a couple questions? Sure. All right. Um, I, I'm not sure where, but I think somewhere in the, I think it's the Old Testament, it says that uh, one third of the people are God's chosen and two thirds are not. And we know that Jesus says that many will be called, but few will answer. Does that mean that in the in the judgment or, or, or in the final, um, or the final tribulation, the final judgment, that there's going to be more people who are not chosen or more people, I guess you'd say, 